Thanks for tuning in to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our mission is to be with Jesus and become like Him for the sake of the world. We hope the message today helps you to do just that. Let's dive in. Um, have you ever gotten someone else's identity wrong? Y'all, I'm trusting you with this information. I've, I've had really bad eyesight like most of my life. And the amount of times I've emphatically waved at someone in a distance thinking I know them, only to find out that I don't actually know them. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Anyone been there? Have I done that to anyone here? I'm sure that I have. But I'm just like, I don't know you. This is the worst. I just, it fills me with so much social anxiety. I feel like I'm regularly misplacing people's identity. And uh, this happened once when I was about eight or nine. I was uh, at the grocery store with my family, with my mom. And at some point I got lost in the grocery store, which... As an adult, it does not feel like that big of a deal, but when you get lost in a grocery store when you're like eight, it's, it's terrifying. And I remember panicking and I'm like running up and down the aisles like, where's my mom, where's my mom? Until finally, I like rounded a corner and I saw my mom at the end of the aisle facing the other direction. And I was just filled with all this relief. Like, oh, I'm so grateful. And so I sprinted down the aisle to my mom and I wrapped my arms around her legs and I yelled, mommy! Now, not only was that person not my mother, wasn't even a woman. It was, <laughs> he just had like beautiful hair and it was very, <laughs> have you ever mistaken someone's identity for something else? And that's, that's one thing to get someone else's identity wrong. It's something else entirely to get your own. And some of us, maybe it's that you've had a credit card stolen and someone's maybe taken your identity, but I think for a lot of us, perhaps we've maybe surrendered it on our own. We've forgotten who we actually are and what is most true about us. And so I want to spend a couple minutes today talking about what do you do when you forget who you actually are. If you're just joining us, we're in the middle of a long series called Jesus in the Table. And the reason for that is this, early Christianity did not take shape on stages or behind pulpits or on altars or even in books took shape around tables with real flesh and blood people breaking bread, sharing stories, proclaiming good news to each other. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either at a meal, going to a meal, leaving a meal, making a meal, or eating a meal. Like it's so central to the ministry of Jesus. He's at tables with people. So we're spending a couple weeks, a couple months actually, exploring what we're calling Jesus' table manners, the stories he told and the people he ate with, who Jesus ate with, I would argue is one of the most controversial things about his ministry. And so I want to talk a little bit about how he uses the table. And we'll see this in Luke chapter 15. This is where our text begins in verse 1. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. We see this again and again. Uh, The people that the religious elite wanted nothing to do with are drawn to Jesus. That alone should convict many of us. They couldn't get enough of him. They kept drawing themselves. They kept wanting to be around him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious elite, they muttered to themselves, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This is an accusation we see levied against Jesus a number of times. It's not just simply that he like serves them every once in a while or that he's seen in public with them on occasion. This man eats with them. He shares a table with them, which in the first century was a big no-no. And then following this sort of muttering, this murmuring, Jesus tells three really profound stories. He tells a story about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. If you've never read them before, I highly encourage you to read all three of them. They are beautiful and brilliant. But we're going to hone in today on just the third one, the lost son. Here's where that story takes place here in verse 11. 
Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Now, if you're familiar with this text, it's usually the heading is like the parable of the prodigal son, singular, right? I want you to make note of this from the get-go, that the man has two sons. This will become really significant in a couple of minutes. It's a story about a younger brother, but it's also a story about an older brother. Pay attention to that. Verse 12, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So the, the younger son, if you're familiar with the story, he asks for his portion of the father's estate. In the, in the Greek, the, the word portion here is the word bios, which is where we get a word for life. So it's not just like the dividing of like resources. A first century reader would have understood this as, oh, this is the father literally dividing his life, dividing not only his estate, but the very portion of his being. Your identity, particularly in this context, was intricately tied up to your land. If you lost your land, you lost your life. If you lost a portion of your land, you lost a portion of your life, and most certainly a portion of your status. Now this would be the kind of thing that a child would not get until the father passed on. So for the son to say, I want my portion now, is essentially a first century way of saying, I wish you were just dead. I don't actually want you, father, I just want your things. I just want your stuff. He wants the comfort of the father, but not the father himself. Now, I didn't realize this until preparing for this message. Uh, a first century father would not stand for that. It would have been very understood that for a son to make that kind of request, a father would have just ran him out, maybe even violently. That would have been expected, but this father doesn't do that. In fact, he does the unthinkable and he grants the son this request. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So again, you got to keep in mind, like the father can't just like wire the son the money, right? He's got to get his affairs in order. He's got to like liquidate his assets. And this takes a little bit of time. Now, this is just conjecture, but I wonder if during that time, the father is hoping and praying that the son comes to his senses. Like as he's making the arrangements to divide his assets, I hope he's, you know, I wonder if he's like praying, like maybe, maybe he'll realize this is a ridiculous request. The other thing that's worth noting that because this doesn't happen instantaneously, the surrounding village and town is becoming very aware of this. This was an audacious, insulting request and this was not likely happening in secret. This gave time for word to get out. Did you hear about what he requested of his dad? Can you believe that? What kind of son says that to a father? Verse 14, after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. Now, uh, it's easy for us to kind of gloss over the severe famine piece because most of us have not experienced what a severe famine actually look like, looks like. But in that day, in this particular part of the world, there were no humanitarian organizations. There was no communication. There was no transportation. I don't mean to be crude, but like a severe famine meant like dead bodies in the streets. And it meant like, in some areas, probably cannibalism and like utter despair for a lot of us, we think of like severe famine. We're like, oh man, I have to go to the Kroger that's a little bit further from my house now, right? Like they're all out of the cereal I like. But this is a devastating circumstance. And Jesus' first listeners would have been very familiar with this. They would have known this. And it's not at this point in the story that the child goes home. Why? Why wouldn't he go home at this point? 
It's because I think he knows what likely awaits him when he returns. More on that in a second. Verse 15. So instead he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So he gets a job feeding pigs. And to us, like, if the, every cartoon depiction I've seen, like, makes the scene a little silly, which I totally understand. But you have to understand, in Judaism, a, a pig was an unclean animal. So for a first century audience, this wasn't just like an unfortunate job. It was a deeply dishonorable one. Like this is part of what the parable is trying to get at. Like he doesn't just get like a bummer of a job. This is like a defiling one. Like look how far this son has fallen. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, I want you to hold on to that phrase. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. This idea of coming to our senses is the biblical idea of repentance. Repentance is is not just simply like, oh, I feel really bad about this thing that I did. It's coming to our senses, realizing how far from home we are. Repentance, metanoia, is a changing of direction. It's saying like, I tried this direction and that actually didn't lead to a life of flourishing and meaning and purpose. It's a changing of directions, but it also implies going home. What if we began to talk about repentance not as you should feel real bad about what you've done, but about inviting people to go home, inviting people to the place that they actually belong. Verse 18, he says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So that's the speech that he's sort of rehearsed in his head. So he got up and he went to his father. He went back home. This moment is a game changer. He doesn't simply just feel sorry for himself. He actually gets up and begins the journey home when he realizes, I cannot do this on my own. That's the moment of repentance. Now, it's worth noting his plan is not to request to be a slave. A slave would live in the home with the homeowner. His plan is to be a hired hand. And a hired hand lives somewhere in town, but they earned a wage, which implies that the son wants to pay his father back because he knows you don't re-enter the community after doing what he's done with just an apology. So the speech that he's rehearsing is, here's how I'm going to earn my way back. I want to earn my way back, Father. Now, a little bit later in the service, we're going to give everyone a chance to do this sort of repentance, this metanoia, this returning home. I want to talk a little bit about our inclination often to think, God, I'm going to try and earn my way back to you. The gospel of grace knows no such category. Many of us have rehearsed speeches, God, I will do this if, and if you give me this opportunity then, and this is, this is what I so love about this story. The son is rehearsing the story of how he's going to earn his way back. And the son journeys home, and here's what we find in verse 20. While he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So I want you to imagine for a second that you're the father. And someone who has not only like deeply hurt and insulted you, but harmed those you love, has been gone, I don't know for how long. And you see this person while a long way off making their way back to your house. What are you thinking in that moment? Like, what are you feeling? 
maybe if we're honest, our instinct is to think, my arms would be crossed thinking this better be good. Yeah, they better be really remorseful. They better have a good excuse. There better be, the groveling better be up to par. The story that we have here is a, a man, a heartbroken man who's looking over the horizon, waiting every single day. And on this day, he sees his boy a long way off. I mentioned earlier that I don't have great vision. So typically, like, I wouldn't be able to recognize anyone from a long way off. It's hard for me to even be sure if it's human, like it's that bad. But I was thinking about this, how uh, someone's walk is kind of a distinct thing, isn't it? Like, think about the people that you know best. My guess is, even if you can't articulate it, you probably know how they walk, how they carry themselves. This father saw that boy take his very first steps. He knows that walk. He knows that boy. And he's looking over the horizon every single day, hoping upon hope to see him. And Jesus said this father had compassion on him and didn't wait with arms crossed for him to make it all the way to the house, but he ran. Who is waiting for us when we return? It's a God who runs. A God who sprints. Jesus is saying something really wonderful about God here. Luke actually chooses a technical term to describe the running. It's literally the father raced or he sprinted. Some of us, again, maybe we picture like a, like a brisk power walk or like a lively saunter of some kind. The word Luke uses is an athletic term. Picture someone sprinting so hard that they're out of breath. His father sees his boy and runs. This is a big deal. In the first century in the Middle East, to see a father running would have been not only undignified, but like massively humiliating. First off, to run, he would have to like kind of gather up his, his robe and that would expose his naked legs, which is weird to a modern sense, right? Particularly humiliating in a first century context. But more than that, grown, important, respected men did not run anywhere. People came to them. Think about it this way, like if you, if you put on the news, like if you saw the president like climb out of Air Force One and then sprint across the tarmac to meet a world leader, that would be unsettling for most of us, right? Like why, it just, it just, it, it does something like, oh, that's, no, you're, no you, don't, you don't run, people come to you. Important people don't run, but this father runs, why? He can't stop thinking about his boy. He can't stop thinking about his boy, and he's thinking, I have to get to him before anyone else does. The father takes on the humiliation that should have fallen on the, on the son and takes it upon himself. He lets it fall on himself because this father has never stopped loving this boy no matter how far he wandered off. Some of us desperately need to hear that word today. No matter how far you feel like you've wandered, the love of the father has never been not an inch more shallow God is so filled with compassion for you that no matter how far the distant country you've been to, he sprints after you. And there's something else significant about this running father. Jesus tells a story, and I think his audience would have had a hard time picturing this. There's so many aspects that would have been so foreign to them. But in their day, a boy who had taken his father's money and squandered it among the Gentiles, no less, would have experienced a very different reception as he made his way back home. Typically, the people of the town would intercept the person attempting to return home at the gate, and they'd perform a ceremony called Kezeza. Let me hear you say Kezeza. 
Here's essentially how the kezeza would go. The, the, the people would gather at the gate to prevent the person from coming in, and they would take a, a pot, and the pot represented the person's entire life. And so the person attempting to return to their home would be met essentially by a mob, and they would take this pot, and they say, this pot is your life. And you've wandered off, and you've insulted your family, and you've hurt your community. This is how we feel about you. You are kezeza. Kezeza literally means cut off. It's their way of saying to this child, attempting to return home, you are not whole. You are not welcome. You are kezeza. You have harmed your family. You have harmed the heart of your father. You are kezeza. And some of us can relate to this feeling all too well. Like, like maybe it was everything in you even to log in online or to show up at a church service, but inside you feel so deeply, devastatingly broken. And the script that runs in your head is how unworthy you actually are. This is the kind of reception that the boy expects. This is why he doesn't come home sooner. He's like, I know that Kezeza is waiting for me. This is why the boy doesn't come home even when he's in such great pain. That's the reception he not only would have expected but likely would have thought he deserves. But the father doesn't care about any of that. Day after day, this father scans the horizon just in, in the hopes of catching a glimpse of his son. I imagine his friends likely would have said, forget that brat, move on. But this father would not stop looking and longing and gazing and praying. And when he sees his son, what does he do? He sprints. He says, I have to get to him before the rest of the town does. Before the case is, I have to get to my boy so that he knows. Just how loved and known and welcome he is. Let me ask you, do you understand that this is the God that waits for you too? When we come to the point where we admit that we've blown it, that we've wandered away, we recognize I need help. This is how God responds to us. This is the God that we find, a God who sprints, a God who runs after us. This picture of a father running after his son reminds me of a story of a, an Olympic athlete named Derek Redman. And Redman's career was... Frustrated by injury, by the end of the 1992 Barcelona Olympics, he'd undergone five operations, including one on his Achilles tendon, less than four months before the games began. But in Barcelona, everything seemed to be going great for him. He was running well, he recorded the fastest time of the first round, and he won his quarterfinal heat. But as the gun went off in the semifinal race, Derek got off to a clean start and was running smoothly when about 150 meters into the race, his right hamstring muscle tore, and he fell to the ground but he knew he had to finish the race. So Redmond jumped up and began hobbling desperately towards the finish line. And it was at this moment that one of the most touching moments in all of sports that I've ever seen happened. Take a look.
was the man that ran? It was his father. I have no idea who won that race, to be honest. I will never forget the picture of a father who runs to his son battered and bruised and helps him across the finish line. God is the father who runs. He's not some remote God who's out there, distant, doesn't really care about what's going on in our lives, but one who is present and active. He is a relational God that desires closeness and intimacy and relationship with us. And when we decide to come home, we will discover that help has a name and it's Jesus. If you wanna know what God is like, look to Jesus. Jesus is God with us, sent by God to live among us as one of us, fully God and fully man. C.S. Lewis once said it this way, the only way Hamlet could discover anything about Shakespeare would be if Shakespeare wrote himself into the play. And this is what God does through Jesus. He writes himself into our story by coming in the person of Jesus. If we want to know what kind of God is waiting for us when we come back to him, we find it in the person of Jesus, a God who is present, promising to never leave us or forsake us, a God who's full of grace, refusing to condemn us even when it's deserved, a God who is humble, bending down to care for our needs, a God who is for us, sacrificing even himself when we were helpless to save ourselves, a God who is relational, inviting us to follow him closely every single day. And yet in this story, the son has returned home, but he's still living with a mistaken identity. Verse 21, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Even after he sees his father sprint toward him, the boy still tries out his earning speech. Even after seeing what he just saw, he launches into his pitch. Even after being embraced and kissed, even after all these unmistakable signs of his love and affection, the son's opinion of himself doesn't catch up to his new identity. And maybe you've felt that way before. Maybe you feel that way now that you like sing songs and you believe beliefs, but like deep down you're like, yeah, God loves the world, but could he ever actually love me? The things I've done or left undone or have been done to me, you've left maybe with mountains of pain and regret. Sometimes you're so burdened with shame that you doubt that God will even still embrace you. Shame is the shadow that follows this boy home, and maybe you can relate. Shame causes us to forget who we actually are. Do you know that the truest thing about you is that you're loved? The truest thing about you. It's not your accolades, it's not your accomplishments, it's not what you've done or left undone or has been done to you is that you were loved by the father that sprints. And while the son was still shaking his head in shame, saying, I'm no longer worthy, this is what happens next. The father says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. The father doesn't even accept the speech. He ignores it entirely. He says, let's throw a party. I've been saying this a lot in this series. I think Christians should be known for throwing the best parties in every town and city on planet Earth. If this is the story that we celebrate of a God who sprints, then we should be throwing the best part. I don't think Jesus would be in our cul-de-sac with arms crossed. I'm like, they're having a little too much fun over there. This is a picture of a God who throws a party. No matter how far you've drifted, the invitation is to come home. Maybe you've made bad choices. Maybe you've been selfish. You've cheated. You've stolen. You've committed crimes. Maybe you're going through an ugly divorce or you've ripped people off. Maybe you've been involved in things that you've never told a soul and you're convinced, man, if I were to ever actually tell anyone, they would just scoff at me. You can come home. Sometimes this is well-meaning church people. We attend weekly. We do all the right moral things. But there's a secret life that's crushing you. 
you can come home. There's nothing you have to do to impress or earn God's favor or affection. Jesus died in our place, died for our sin. No one earns their way back. It's a gift. You just come home. I imagine the son's head must have been spinning a robe, a ring, sandals for me. Each of these gifts hold really meaningful significance. A robe was a symbol of rest. When he says, bring me the best robe, whose robe was best in the household? It was the father's. Brings the robe of the father which is essentially saying you don't have to run anymore. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. You don't have to strive anymore. Everything is going to be okay. The sun can rest. The ring was a symbol of security. It was a signet ring. It was like handing a credit card with no limit, saying you'll never be in want again. I'll take care of you. The sandals were a symbol of acceptance. In ancient Jewish homes, the only people who would wear sandals in the house were the homeowners. Slaves and servants were barefoot. I imagine this son returning home barefoot, destitute, the father said, you're not a slave, you're my son. These three gifts told him the truth about his identity. You're not a stranger. You're not a hired hand. You're a son. You're a daughter. You are a part of the family. This is your true identity. And when I look at my own life, I realize how often I'm the prodigal. How often I've lived under the shadow of shame and lost my true identity. Maybe you can relate. I carry around regrets. I don't feel worthy of love. Maybe you're realizing that maybe you've forgotten your identity too. The truest thing about you is that you're loved. Do we really know that today? That in Christ you are forgiven, in Christ you are accepted, in Christ you are loved. As we follow Jesus, we must push back anything that tells us that we are not accepted by God. If that voice isn't first whispering grace, mercy, forgiveness, it's not Jesus. We don't come with arms full of all the things that we can do for God, but broken and empty, and we discover a God who sprints. And then he says in verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. He throws a party. These were not somber occasions, by the way. There was trumpets and dancing, and they probably ate like a little too much. The Bible is serious about a lot of things, not the least of which is about partying. We see again and again and again that God loves a good party. Perhaps the best response to the reality that we are loved is to celebrate. In fact, I like to think about Baptism Sunday as a party. We're going to throw a party, by the way, in a couple of minutes. When we have some friends who go under the water recognizing they have died to themselves in sin and are raised to new life in Christ, we're not looking for golf claps. We're not looking for polite hurrahs. We're looking for a party because we're shaking the gates of hell today. And we get to be a part of that celebration. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We desperately need to remember that God did not simply come to like improve our lives a little bit, to tweak some things here or there, but for us to die to ourselves and be raised to the newness of life. Baptism represents the dying to our old self, the life, the self that tried to live apart from him, to be good enough, smart enough, holy enough. And as we are lowered into the water, that old self is washed away. And as we're raised out of the water, alive to the new creation of who he says we are. Today, if you're ready, I want to invite you to step into that new reality. Some of you came prepared. Some of you had no idea that today was going to be the day that you get baptized. You can come home. You can come home. In fact, 
Years ago, I heard a professor summarize the entire Bible this way. He says, here's how I would summarize the Bible in four, four lines. I love you. I am with you. Don't be afraid. Come home. Maybe you feel like you've been in a far-off country, that you've, you've been broken apart by sin, shame, guilt. The Father who sprints says, you can come home. But the story doesn't stop there. I'll end with this. Verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, the older brother, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. Notice he doesn't call him father. He says, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The older brother refuses to enter, not because he's too bad a son, but because he considers himself too good. We can most certainly run from God in our immorality, but we can also run from God in our morality. Convincing ourselves through good church attendance or behavior or righteous living that God somehow now owes me. Both of these sons are communicating. They just simply want the father's stuff and they go about it in very different ways. I would say it this way. You could be in the father's home and still miss the father's heart. Some of us this entire time, as I describe a prodigal, you're thinking, yeah, get them. I have a laundry list of prodigals that I hope hear this sermon. <laughs> Maybe for you, you don't feel broken at all, but entitled. God, look at all that I've done for you. Look at all the good things I'm doing. It was the music and the dancing that offended the older son. It was the party. I wonder if the, son, if the older brother was thinking like, yeah, let him back, but don't throw him a party. Not the fattened calf. Here's what I love about grace. Mercy gave the prodigal son forgiveness, but grace gave him a feast. It's not just that you're forgiven, friends. It's not just that you get to squeak by, but this father, this father, this, this God who sprints throws a party. For my son, my daughter was lost and now they're found. They were dead, but now they're alive. The younger brother was trying to get the father's things by breaking all the rules, but the older brother was trying to get the things by keeping them. And Jesus shows us that they're both lost. In this story, both sons are outside the house, one in rebellion and the other in resentment. And the father goes after both of them because that's what loving fathers do. So whether you consider yourself the younger brother wondering maybe am I too far gone or the older brother that you're realizing maybe you've walked in some self-righteousness thinking that you, there's some way for you to earn God's favor or affection. Either way, God is coming after you. You can come home. You can join the party. Come home.
you've never actually surrendered your life to Jesus in a way that you know it wasn't lip service, it wasn't coercion, it wasn't emotionality, God will forgive you of your sins. If you want to know how much God loves you, look at Jesus. Jesus who became broken for us, who cried on, on the cross, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? So that we can be free. That hunger for home is not something the world will ever fill. The hunger to be forgiven, to be loved, to be put back together is really ultimately, I believe, a hunger for God. And the beauty of all of this is that when we surrender, God's word says he makes his home in us. And for the Christ follower, now everywhere you go is the home of God. And if you've never come home, you can do that today. I'm gonna invite all of us, wherever you're at, just to sort of close your eyes, bow your heads. And in particular, if you've never come home, if you, if you recognize, man, that's me. I don't think I've ever actually prayed this and believed it and surrendered. I would encourage you to pray these words. Heavenly Father, I confess to you my sin and brokenness. I ask you for your forgiveness as a free gift through Jesus. I, sur I surrender to you and invite you to make your home in my heart from this day forward. And for the one who recognizes that they've been the older brother, I would encourage you to pray something like this, God, free me from my self-righteousness of the belief that I can somehow earn your favor and affection. Help me to come home, maybe for the first time or the hundredth time, to join the celebration of a God who sprints, a God who runs, even in our most broken circumstance, God. Help us to live more fully into that reality, to surrender like we do every week, God. Our wills, our plans to you. God, help us to die to ourselves so that we can be raised to new life in you. We thank you, we love you, God, and we pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus and all God's people said. Thanks for listening to the Bridge Church's podcast today. If you want to be the first to know each time a new message is released, hit the subscribe button so you can stay up to date. We're so grateful we can release content that encourages our local body and followers of Jesus all around the world. If you'd like to partner with us and help fuel the mission of the Bridge Church, there's a link to give below. If you're curious about visiting or want to get involved, take a minute to learn more by visiting bridge.tv. All right, fam, thanks for listening. May we be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world.